Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning and welcome to City Limits. You have just listened to This Land Will Change by Shock Octopus. And the reason why I'm playing this song today is because we have David Holmgren at 9.30 to talk about a retrofitting the suburb. And, uh, yeah, we got that today and we um, we had hoped to have, but hopefully we'll have next week, which is not much use to listeners listening today, um, we hope to have... Um, 
a resident who lives near the Coolaroo fire because um, apart from the fact that we talked to Helen Vandenberg about it and we've talked about it, also in the news this week's been the fact the age and the and four corners we're running stories about the fact that our recycling um, our recycling industry is a great misnomer because it doesn't actually recycle. Um, we can't and, even get that right, can we? No, but the woman we're going to talk to, um, she's working this morning. She's actually teaching violin at a high school at, a, so, uh, at this time, so she couldn't get out of it. But hopefully next week we'll have her on. Uh, and she's she's contemplating being part of a class action against the company that's that's being organised. Oh, um, that's good. So we'll see what happens. But that's so that's for next week now, not this week. That next week's housing, normal housing. We'll have that as well. Yeah, fantastic. So there we are. Um, and I was going to ask you, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was a good idea for was it Bob Hawke that privatised the Commonwealth Bank? Or was, was it back Keating? in the days? Keating, well, the Keating Hawke government. The Keating Hawke government. Um, yeah, yeah, they privatised. Well, no, I well, <laughs> difficult question. <laughs> Had to think about it, but pro- probably no. <laughs> no, you do ask the point. Yeah, but this show's full of these probing questions that leave you to think. Um, but uh, well, it's early in the morning, so I thought I'd get your brain going. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. We also had a state bank in Victoria, of course, and um, yeah. it went it went that way as well. But um, yeah, no, it's it's shocking. But I was interested the fact that um, Nareb, the the head there, the big poncho, um, said that um, big poncho said that uh, uh, really they only made there was only really one mistake involved. So what he's really saying is we made one mistake fifty fifty three thousand seven hundred and thirteen times. Mm, exactly. Uh, and that looks like being their defence, that really it was one mistake, but it just happened 53,713 times. There's a small risk that some bonuses might be reduced as a result. Well, this could yes, be yes, that's true. But it's been pointed out this morning that if they don't get the bonuses, they'll still all be earning more than the relevant people in relative people in the other banks. Well, so, of course, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's our privatised Commonwealth Bank. Mm. Yes. The which bank, which used to be our bank. Which used to be our bank, <laughs> yeah, yes. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, that's... Uh, but it's well. It's I mean, it's it's just a it's at that particular bank. It's just one scandal after another. Of course, yeah. there was the the advice stuff. There was the big scandal around their insurance thing, which did you know went out of its way to make sure it didn't pay anybody. Um, mm. Common sure whatever it was called. So there's all that. Yeah. Meg, mm. did you uh, have anything? Oh, I've been spending all my time reading about retrofitting suburbia ah. this week. Yes, I wanted to have some interesting and intelligent questions, so we'll see how that goes. Right, and yeah. you're going to be probing questions like that last one from... Uh... Interrogative, <laughs> yes. yep. Is yep. that right? Yep. Put, him, put him on the spot. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> now, I just want to raise a couple of things, um, because uh, we've had a few reports this week. There's been the Hilda report, which came out of Melbourne Uni, which the papers reported on. And the Herald Sun led its front page on. I think it, it leads its front page often on days when it wants to avoid other issues like the bank problem and all those sort of things. Um, but uh, it, it came out working harder, longer, but struggling. And this report uh, from from Uni of Melbourne um, says that um, we're all working harder. Uh, we're working longer, but people are struggling to pay their bills, etc., and you know all that sort of stuff. Um, there was another report uh, that came out of the Governance Institute of Australia, which said Australians have a poor view of the ethical standards at large corporations and their top management, particularly in the banking and finance sector. And it goes on about uh, such things. I wonder why. And of course, the Age has produced a report, um, which was a. Um, one, they did a focus um, focus report, a focus study report, which says that voters think both parties are absolutely hopeless, that uh, Turnbull's gutless, that um, they call someone called Shorten a snake, um, <laughs> and, um, and such matters. And I thought, that, now there's been a lot of money spent on these three reports, I'd imagine, the Union you know, of Melbourne report, which looked at thousands of people, wouldn't have been cheap to do. Um, the study by the governance mob wouldn't have been cheap to do, and the the age report ringing all those people and doing the focus thing for some time wouldn't have been cheap to do. They could have asked any of us <laughs> for nothing. They could <laughs> and got exactly the same answers and come up with you know why do you need a report to tell you that people are struggling and not earning enough money? Why do you need a report to say that people don't trust big business? And why do you need a report to say that? Turnbull, Shorten and the major parties are hopeless. 
It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 They must have a very big budget, that's all I can say. Yeah, that's what They must I have thought. so much money that that's they just got to think of ways of getting rid of it. Yeah, they'd have to, mm. wouldn't mm. they? Mm. Yeah. I mean, there was one years ago, an academic study, which it was, this is true, it was to investigate why people or how much salt people use in their food. And it concluded that the amount of salt people use is directly related to the size of the holes in the salt shaker. <laughs> that was worth doing, wasn't it? <laughs> Unfortunately, people tend not to... Uh, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of power and authority in academia, and so people tend not to take things seriously unless there's a report about it, which is a shame, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. But it's one way that people can sort of give that kind of power to, to a position on something. And the thing is, a lot of academics don't realise how much power they've got. And I would mm. like more academics, planning academics especially, to yeah. go in harder about yeah. explaining the, the problems that mm. Melbourne is facing. And the fact that, you know, we're on a one-way road to very, very poor outcomes, very unsustainable living. Uh, we've got to really seriously shake things up. Mm. And I wish academics would go in harder on that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a long-running problem. I mean, these reports have come out um, and they, they get into the news for various reasons but there's so many reports in academia that are really valuable and important and if they got out to the community it might help a mm-hmm. lot that just get lost in there they come out in papers and mm. they get lost they don't get yeah. seen. in peer review I magazine know. and they just and yet mm. they they could be invaluable and they mm. would be invaluable mm. but um, they just don't get out and it's a, it's a real problem. Well, that's, that's, that's right. And it'd be great if, if, you know, the main planning academics in Melbourne were to write a letter in the age and all of them to sign it saying, mm. unless we invest massively in public housing and public transport as of mm. yesterday, mm. we're going to end up with huge spatial inequality and we're going to continually um, increase our per capita footprint as urban sprawl continues mm. With all of the impacts that that has, because mm. uh, you've only got a small window of opportunity, really, because mm. our population is meant to double mm. in a couple of decades' time. So, every week that goes by is a week lost. Uh, they probably even um, mark. They might even be academic reports on how dangerous it is to fly an aircraft. That sort of thing. <laughs> oh, harsh, harsh, <laughs> harsh. That's so harsh. Yes, yeah. I very rarely fly. I have no choice. I have no choice but to fly. I, I'm going to England on a sort of bucket list trip, final wave goodbye to my old country trip um, because I, I'm not sure if I'll ever get back there again. Yeah, I have to fly. I'm going to Adelaide first by train, if that helps. I'm flying out of Adelaide, so I'm no, catching the train. I think it's, the, safe, I think it's I think. the long haul from, uh, from Adelaide to Britain that's going to be the problem. The, the irony is is that my flight will add to global dimming as well, so it will have a short-term benefit, but unfortunately a long-term a long-term problem thanks for that Kevin. if it makes it of course <laughs> yeah if it well, makes well, it yes. kevin's sure it also like, feeding most, into my fear of flying thank most you most of them do most they, of them do i wouldn't worry too much no um on um other matters people coming the other way in fact um the united nations um their high commission on for refugees has come out and and attacked our government um, over its refugee policy, which is um, oh hard to believe, but it is, it's, we're in breach of its our obligations to refugees, um, and he's, they've also attacked the new rules we're bringing in, a, in for um, for citizenship, um, saying our tough new laws, which include stronger English language requirements and longer waits for residents to become citizens, the UN, UNHCR accused the government of creating barriers to integration and called on on Minister Dutton. Oh God, mm. he wouldn't register to rewrite or scrap key elements of the changes and goes on, etc., etc. Refugees must be prepared to adapt to the host society, but the host society, in return, should be welcoming and responsive to refugees. Um, they go on, and um, the chief executive of the anti-family violence group White Ribbon Australia said the changes would have devastating effects on Australian families. The changes will make it easier for people in abusive relationships to exert power and control over their victims. Lack of citizenship rights will put vulnerable women at more risk, etc., etc. Has this got to do with the conversation between Trump and Turnbull, the transcript transcript that came out? It didn't didn't arise out of that, but it was similar, wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah, where Trump says, oh, uh, you're worse than me. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. clever. Oh, yeah. keep not let anybody in. Yeah. Oh, very clever. And yeah. I think we yeah. should we should console them both because um, Trump having someone better at something than he is would make Trump, <laughs> Trump be, very upset. Because Trump yeah. wants to be, you know, if it's going to be the worst, he has to be the best worst. Mm. He, does. Uh, he does. I am the yeah. best worst. Good, good. <laughs> yes. Um, so 
really, um, I think we should put both their minds at risk and say, look, we really can't decide who's the worst. That's fair. Is, That's yeah, kind. They're yeah. as bad as each other. But, of course, it was interesting, and, and I think not enough has quite been made of it, that um, Malcolm did say, look, you only have to bet them, you don't have to take any of them. Yes, mm. exactly. That shows where they're really at. Shows where such, they're really at, yes. Such a cruel, cruel policies. So many Australians yeah. want refugees to come here. And, it's, yeah. it's a very sad indictment of where we're at in Absolutely. society generally. Yeah. And if you yeah. took surveys, it's even sadder that there is probably, I don't know what percentage would be, but there's a percentage of Australians who say we're doing the right thing, for goodness sake. The Maybe most... the Murdoch press doesn't help, arguably. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help possibly, at all. Yeah, Kevin, what do you reckon? <laughs> another it's tough hard to one. tell what <laughs> Kevin's opinion on the Murdoch press is. Yeah. Uh, another tough one, but <laughs> 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 maybe it doesn't help a lot. <laughs> Although using the word jihad and terrorist every day when it refers to refugees it doesn't put them down that much. I mean, they do say that not all refugees are jihadists or, or, or terrorists. Speaking of great minds, we've been to Peter Duffer. Well, he's, you know, the, the other claim to be the greatest mind in Cabinet um, Barnacle, old Barnacle. Um, we mentioned last week about Barnacle got recorded after he said that um, the irrigation thing was just like a bit of cattle rusting, hmm. rustling. Um, he, um, or cattle rusting, I suppose, as well, because it's water involved. But anyway, cattle rustling. And um, he uh, then got, of course, got recorded saying that taking the Four Corners program, you know what that's all about. I think I read this last week. It's about them trying to make take more water off you, trying to create a calamity, a calamity for which the solution is to take more water off you, shut more of your towns down. And, you know, we've stopped the greenies. And he explained how he, had, he made sure he got water taken off the environment portfolio because, well... What's water got to do with the environment? Anyone can anyone answer that one? Nothing. No idea. Nothing. About as much value as air Nothing. has to the environment. <laughs> Nothing. I mean, and, and uh, you know, the Greenies want a river to be a bloody river. Crazy. What, where's value in that? Mm. Idealists, really, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Well, since then, there's been a bit of a blow for the old barnacle. Um, it turned out he he recommended to the for the Murray Basin Murray Darling Basin Authority a woman called Perrin Davy which is an interesting name because Perrin can almost bring visions of a very expensive piece of water uh, mm. in a bottle. Oh, yes. Which, in fact, people, people, you know, people buy thinking they're getting this wonderful French water, which, in fact, is Nestle and it's destroying Africa, but that's another question. Um, but anyway, Perrin Davy and Perrin Davy and her father are described as, um, are described as uh, the royalty of the of the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party, the National Party. Mm. And so he recommended her, and her role before her role has been as a lobbyist for the irrigation, um, irrigation lobby, for the irrigation industry, and she's already said that she doesn't believe in the, um, in the plan, the Murray-Dayson-Mason plan, it needs to be changed, we need more water for irrigators, etc. So naturally, Barnacle uh, appointed her to the authority. Now, a bit like poor old the Mooch in, in New York, when, in, in Washington, where he, you know, as they were sort of unloading all this stuff into the office, they had to tell the, the van to hold it, we're coming out again. Um, the, uh, this same thing happened. She, before she got a bum on the seat virtually, she had to leave because it turns out in the, in the, as he got recorded at the pub, she got recorded. Uh, in that Four Corners show where the bloke said, look, we're, we'll give you all this wonderful information which will help you, but we'll take our brand off it. You know, we'll, we'll make sure it, no one can trace where, where it came from. And someone on, in the show said, wow, that'd be fantastic. And it turned out that was her. She was there. Ah. And so when that was exposed, she was forced to resign. Mm-hmm. Uh after, after, and I point out to you that they're regarded as as the royalty of the party. These people, her and her father, and yet, and yet, you would find it hard to believe. After she had to leave, and after he had recommended her for the Basin Authority in the most glowing of terms, and what a wonderful person she was, Barnacle then came out and said he'd never had a conversation with Miss Davy. Never had a conversation. But I've, I've heard she has withdrawn her application. Never had a conversation, he said. Mm. Yeah, what do you think? Mm. He said, we've accepted that I leave the rest for Perrin, Perrin Davy to answer. In other words, 
he's got out, he's come off the plane with the parachute and left her in it. Well, so it would seem. As yeah. it goes down. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's he's the latest. He's probably been very busy, I imagine. Very busy, yeah. very busy. That's, you know, that's the latest. And the, all these other dreadful people are screaming out that he should have his water portfolio taken off him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he fought so hard to get it. <laughs> Ah, um, Barnaby, Barnaby. What will we do without him? Oh, well, that's right. I've made that point on, on the week that was. You know, it, why, why do they want to take it off him? What have they got against satirists? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Taking, taking away one of our great assets. Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, you might remember that last year or so, probably more than a year now, but a bloke called, uh, and the name probably won't mean, mean much, Martin Shkreli, S-H-K-R-E-L-I, the second name, he bought a company called Retrofin, if you might recall, a pharmacy company, and instantly put up a life-saving drug by 5,000%. Remember that, the drug? Oh, went, yes, I do. Went yes, from some, yes. some you know, reasonable amount of money yes. to, to people. And, of course, in America, this means people just died because you, you know, mm. it's no free, free medicine or anything. Uh, well, you'll be, you'll be sad to hear... That he's been uh, he's been on a five week trial where he was charged with frauds, um, accused of securities and wire fraud related to two hedge funds he ran. Poor man, and Poor he kept man. throughout the case he kept saying he'd be found not guilty and what's it matter and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, sadly, last week he got convicted on three counts um, and faces twenty years on each of them, each of the first and five. So that's forty five years he faces. Wow, yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Anyway. But he's still tweeting, but of course the judge let him let him out pre-sentencing, so he's still walking the streets. Um, and during his post-verdict live stream, Shrakelly, sipping from a bottle of India Pale Ale, speculated that his sentence would be close to nil, and that he was not anticipating spending time in a in a maximum security facility. Um, so he's still very confident, but we can only hope. Speaking of um, of, the, of people we admire, I know around here we, you know, a lot of people are are, are royalists and uh, believe in the crown and all that sort of thing. Uh, and you'll be pleased to hear the interview last week with a woman called Alison Nimmo, who runs the um, the Crown Estate, which runs the Queen's properties, etc. Mm-hmm. And you'll be pleased to know that Her Most Gracious Majesty's current the current value of her properties. Her property or her estate is twenty one point four billion. Ah, there we go. Twenty one point four billion. Isn't that wonderful? Well, she'd better uh, afford to buy some housing in Melbourne. Yeah, there. there's property everywhere. Um, the redevelopment at Regent Street. Uh, she's putting in um, shopping complexes all over the place, over the country. But interesting enough, she also owns a number of wind farms. Mm-hmm. Swathes of forest and farmland spanning one hundred and six and a half thousand hectares across Britain. Um, we're thinking long terms, etc., etc. It is wind farms where the company has made great steps forward in recent years. Britain generates more electricity from offshore wind than any other country. At the moment, the industry meets about 5% of annual demand, and this is expected to grow to 10% by 2020. Nimmo, that's the woman involved, I mentioned her name, Alison Nimmo, wants the Crown Estate to be well-placed to take advantage. In its latest annual report, wind farms were identified as a key driver in its record returns, making £27.7 million in that case. This made the estate's energy holdings its best-performing sector. Um, so that means they've got other energy holdings as well, presumably coal, etc. Mm. But, and it does make the point, this is despite the fact that the Prince of Wales has called wind farms a horrendous blot on the landscape. Raghuram Rajan, now he um, is um, he was three years Governor of the Reserve Bank of India. He was also at one stage... Um, uh, a, a Brookings Institute person. He's also uh, been on the um, the World Bank or whatever, um, and he's been in all these big financial positions. And he's currently back as a professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And in an interview where he's talking about the world economy, <coughs> he does he says that you know things aren't things that there's good and there's bad. Um, but he said in reflecting back to his award-winning book of 2010, Fault Lines, Rajan sees growing inequality as the primary underlying fault line that continues to run through advanced economies. Digging into the root causes of this rising inequality will be the focus of his future academic research, he says. Well, I would have thought, again, rather than him spending years researching why people are poor and why there's underlying inequality, he could just ask us. Yeah, 
Yeah. We can tell him. Well, that's true. That's the very true. system that he's upholding mm. is causing it. But doing studies can mm. be fun. Yeah, I suppose so. And yeah. there's a catering budget. You get a lot too. of money for it. Mm. So it's all right. Write mm. another book. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are now joined on the line by the co-founder of Permaculture, David Holmgren. And now David's going to talk with us today about his new book that's coming up in the new year called Retro Suburbia. And of course, City Limits uh, as a show being all about town planning and city related issues. This is of great interest to us to find out what happens when permaculture meets urban living. So welcome, David. Uh, Good morning, man. Thank you so much for coming on. I know you're very busy at the moment, so we very much appreciate it. Now, you're joined today with um, Kevin and Meg, who will also be talking to you. And I'll start off by asking you, why the focus on the suburbs? As, a, as, as someone who's been involved in permaculture for a long time, you've, you obviously live out beyond Melbourne, but n- nowadays your focus is on retrofitting the suburbs. So what's brought about this shift? Well, firstly, one just in terms of a little bit of background, when we moved to Hepburn Springs in 1985, I'd already had a decade of experience uh, in the Back to the Land movement working as a consultant to people, an observer of and a participant in that process. And we moved into actually a small country town and didn't buy a rural property. So that might tell you something about you know, a fairly long-standing uh, experience and attitude about different um, residential density. And although uh, Meliodora is um, a one-hectare permaculture demonstration site, it's in what's effectively the equivalent residential pattern of a suburban street. Mm. Now, of course, Hepburn is only a town of, um, uh, you know, a few thousand uh, people, But my interest in this uh, sort of low-density residential development that we associate with the suburbs uh, is a long-standing one. And it's been an observation that at those sort of densities that we see in suburbs and in regional towns and and small towns, there's uh, a critical mass of population Uh, for the sort of things that actually cities have. And there's also the possibility of a degree of self-reliance in food production and other parts of the household economy, the non-monetary part of the economy, where people are doing things in the household at home. Once you move to higher density urban areas, there's much less autonomy uh, that the household can do in controlling their own environment. So that the original historic interest in suburbia was that sweet point of somehow having the advantages of the urban and the advantages of the countryside. Now, of course, all my adult life and from when I was a a planning and design student in Tasmania, uh, um, where permaculture concepts started, the critique of the suburbs as being the worst of both worlds, you know, the worst of the city and the the country um, combined, has been a a constant story, you know, and it's an accepted reality that's just taken for granted that somehow the suburbs are this sort of undesirable thing and of course the way those suburbs have developed is got all sorts of undesirabilities but from a permaculture point of view they represent huge new opportunities of course this turns the narrative that increasing densities as a solution on its head somewhat. Uh, yeah and it's um i mean there's a whole lot of background to this that the urban densification argument is, has sort of so many flaws in it. Firstly, it's a cargo cult <laughs> in that it's, oh, well, we want more people um, at higher density because that's efficient for infrastructure, transport infrastructure, sewerage, all sorts of other things. Yeah, okay, let's accept that. So how do we get more people? Oh, you put up more buildings. 
oh, well, that seems logical, doesn't it? And you house more people. Well, actually, that's what we've done. We've put up more buildings, but we haven't actually increased the residential density that much because we've ended up with bigger houses with fewer people in them. So, you know, the, the, the translation that our oh, densification of buildings leads to the more people that urban planners, you know, and policymakers have always said is better for urban systems has been a complete failure. You know, the, the second aspect of it is that, that mostly those people are actually not in those buildings. The buildings are under lock and key and everyone is travelling between them. And what that does is maximise the amount of activity in the monetary economy. You know, people buying, buying their lunch out rather than making it at home, for example. And so the system is constantly rigged to try and suck all the activity out of the household economy, which is where self-reliance and low environmental impact is built that permaculture is trying to achieve, and funnels it into the monetary economy. And that's what makes our cities feel crowded and understressed because there's all these people going backwards and forwards between work, uh, the, the gymnasium, the this, the that, um, while the places they supposedly live are empty. Yes. Um, I noticed that was one of the things I noticed when I was reading um, up on Retro Suburbia before this interview, David. And um, one of them about uh, there was a there was a phrase social dead zone about um, the suburbs, which is something that I think people feel in those spaces that, that they're empty a lot of the time. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about in in changing that um, that space and making it more community oriented is is um, community economy. Um, and that affects lifestyle and in particular things like social isolation for people who aren't working and for people who are maybe older or caregiving, that, that there's a space where people can be engaging with each other in meaningful ways. Yeah, and there's been a lot of work done that sort of focuses on you know, trying to sort of deal with that, but I see a lot of that as being amelioration mm-hmm. work, um, sort of Band-Aid work, mm-hmm. because what it is is... How we get government funding, which is, of course, reliant on the tax base, which is relied on expanding the GDP, to get more uh, you know, funding to support social services, neighbourhood houses, all mm-hmm. sorts of little sort of initiatives that you know, try and sort of deal with a lot of those issues. Mm-hmm. Rather than recognising that the community non-monetary economies of of reciprocity and exchange and interaction that have all sorts of social values that are are well recognised is built out of a foundation of household monetary, non-monetary economy. That people actually living in a household, that is the basic economic unit of society. Now, we can traditionally call that a family, but the important thing from it an economic and a social point of view is that it's a group of people living in a house and forming a household. And that household economy is almost invisible to all of the the public discussion. Mm. It's somehow seen as some little private, irrelevant uh, thing. And yet, um, you know, we've had in recent years quite a lot of people starting to articulate that that's actually what they want to do. They don't want to be working full-time. They want to be at home. They, they want to be doing things with the kids, but also not just in a consumption sense or somehow the, the wealth is going to come from somewhere else. The people want to be productive at home. And, of course, growing food is, is the most emblematic expression uh, of that. You know, food that's been consumed in the household. Mm. So a lot of the, the motivations can be coming from people around um, work-life balance issues um, and the debt issue, but it's also equally coming out of a lot of people realising that the most effective way that they can 
reduce their ecological footprint is to actually do less in the monetary economy and do more for themselves. Which brings us, David, you mentioned a couple of answers ago that this gave, this brought great opportunities, you said. Uh, what are those great opportunities then? Well, firstly, we've got houses that are historically larger than have ever existed with fewer people in them. So if we make bigger households, extended family coming together, for example, that's already uh, starting to happen for all sorts of obvious reasons for the cost of, of housing, but also just whatever form that comes in, that gives the economies of scale where things like uh, food production, um, manufacturing things at home, doing things to look after yourself start to make sense. Whereas when we have single person households, it's almost impossible to have much in the way of a household economy. I mean, everyone knows that you know cooking a meal for four or six people is not much more work than cooking for one or two. Um, the, but once you start to get deeper into permaculture self-reliance, the things that it makes sense to do all expand enormously when you have a larger household. So that means we can, we can actually get greater levels uh, of self-reliance, lower environmental impact, uh, better social outcomes if we can work out how to live together. <laughs> and that it's, in a way, it's that simple that what was absolutely normal um, in other countries and especially even in previous generations in our own place of having larger households, more people uh, living together, um, we can achieve a lot of the things that people are saying are only can be achieved by some massive rollout of corporate provided technology to reduce environmental impact or a whole lot of other things that all take the power away from what people can do. But I think the biggest issue is that uh, uh, larger, more self-reliant households is the the biggest way we can build resilience to future shocks and whether those shocks come from climate uh, change induced uh, natural disasters or geopolitically uh, triggered uh, oil shocks or a collapse of the Australian property bubble that um, a lot of people can now see is, is um, can't be very far away, that the ability to handle those impacts is much, much stronger if you have a more self-reliant household where people are skilled and provide some, at least some of their own needs and can look after each other collectively. And in the middle suburbs especially, there are a lot of very good gardens and a lot of good soil out there that's been built up over the decades. And that's, that's going to be a real asset as we transition to a low-carbon economy, surely. Yeah, well, this, this is the big opportunity of the suburbs where there still hasn't been the infill development, that you've got solar access to, to houses, so you can do um, you know, creative uh, retrofits like um, um, passive solar uh, greenhouses on the north side uh, of a house um, where there is, uh, yeah, relatively good soil um, and... Uh, environments that are capable of being highly productive um, and we uh, of course uh, are under two stresses at the moment once one is the cost of actually being able to live in those places is so high now that is a sort of a, a sort of an outcome of basically property bubble conditions where property is worth ridiculous amounts and then the debt that comes with that um, in owning or in servicing that indirectly via rent. Uh, it, it makes that very difficult. Now, that condition can change quite radically um, in the future, but it'll have all sorts of knock-on uh, effects. The real opportunity now is for people to use the resilience that's achieved with larger households. I mean, it's just fairly basic, you know, when you share 
a house between more people and live a more outdoor-based lifestyle. Um, uh, you know, that there's, there's opportunities to do that that historically weren't there. You know, like back in the 1930s when times got tough, in a Carlton Terrace house, if there was, you know, eight people already in it, it's hard to say, oh, you know, well, we need to have 16 people in the house to get by. Whereas in a lot of places now, we've got these very large houses and sometimes elderly, lonely people in them by themselves and needing support. Um, so the ways in which we bring those you know, households back together is obviously starting by the, uh, the early adopters, the innovators, people who are young couples who are recognising getting together with their friends and buying a house together, you know, and sort of halving the mortgage, just one example of the sort of uh, things that um, uh, people are doing. And obviously that involves challenges uh, to the way we live, but those, the current cost of housing is, is, is making some people at least think and act more creatively. Mm. And um, permaculture um, obviously has a strong focus on design and um, you mentioned things like passive solar greenhouses and there are other strategies that people can do practically to change their um, suburban block to make it more um, environmentally and energy efficient. Um, but one of the interesting things I, I, I read about um, before this interview was that you mentioned that um, behaviour can undermine good design and also that um, behaviour can be uh, more effective than design in some instances. Yeah, well, the, the book is written in three fields. It's a pattern language for retrofitting the, the built environment, the biological and the behavioural. So mm. the built is, you know, the, the buildings and the infrastructure of water systems and all that stuff we associate with retrofitting and quite strongly uh, with permaculture as well. Mm. The biological is obviously the gardening side and again, we often, you know, we can think of a, a perma blitz as being a sort of like a, a, a radical retrofit of, mm. a, a, of a garden. But mm. the behavioural stuff is the biggest sort of subject area in our experience people um, who are the early adopters of, of these sort of changes find both the biggest obstacles are at the behavioral uh, level and that can be very personal habits right through to how we organize how we uh, live together mm. and that for example functional food habits in young children is one of the huge crisis areas and if you're producing food out of a garden and going to considerable effort to put food on the table and you've got children saying no I don't want to eat that I want to eat what Johnny buys at Coles mm. you know then you have just one example of where the best effort <laughs> of, or, or even just in a shared household someone's gardening and growing food but people go to the fridge and then go to the shop and don't use what's in the garden so the example that I give is that after you know 30 or 40 years of living this way I can say half of the self-reliance we have at Meliodora and we're probably more self-sufficient in food than just about anyone else we know half of that I can attribute to good permaculture design and you know hard and timely seasonal work mm -hmm. but half of it is us over time adjusting our diet to eat what we produce mm -hmm. yes. so you know even in that situation of claiming a fair degree of competence and diligence and effort on the the design and the production side of the equation you know, at least half the solution is on the consumption side of the equation. And the great thing about that is that, of course, humans are incredibly adaptable and there's this dilemma that somehow the behavioural stuff is the, the easiest stuff to tackle and in another perspective, it's the hardest. Mm. 
Mm. Um, so I think there's great opportunities there, you know, that, but, you know, compared with, like another example of crowding that I give is, you know, if a Soweto taxi is full of people, it's hard to say, you know, put more people in the taxi. Whereas in Australia, you know, we have cars driving on our roads with one person in, we could quadruple the uh, fuel efficiency and reduce traffic traffic congestion fourfold by just having four people in a car. When you consider that we're facing a climate emergency, um, most of what you're saying seems like it's pretty much essential. So I can very much appreciate what you're saying. What would you say to someone who says, look, we also have a food bowl on the fringe of Melbourne, which is also very valuable, and we need to prevent Mm. urban sprawl from eating into that food bowl. So we can't continue with low density development indefinitely um, and maybe we should be prioritizing that food bowl over say urban agriculture what, what would your response be to that yeah okay well that's that's an interesting question i um i don't get into those sorts of things in detail in the book because the book is a a, a manual for people actually doing this stuff but there's an essay that um, will be shortly on the retrosuburbia.com website called Feeding Retro Suburbia, and it's about a larger vision of how a bioregional food system uh, could work where urban agriculture, suburban agriculture, is actually providing um, about half the, the food that people are consuming and about half is, is coming from the, the hinterland. So there's definitely ways in which the the active ruralisation of suburbia can complement the maintenance of a a sustainable food bowl, which, of course, we don't have at the present. But the question of that the positives that I'm talking about of suburbia then leading to people assuming we need to build a whole lot more of suburbs like the ones we've built is completely wrong because largely we don't need to build more buildings. The Basically, we have a fake um, debate in this country about that. We have a million homes that are unoccupied and that's a result of the speculative bubble and the sort of tax policies and everything we have, the support for negative gearing. We also have a million homes with three or more bedrooms empty. Mm, now I don't know what the figures are of. I, I suspect there's probably another million with two, and another million with one. Yeah, absolutely. And when a lot we of... start to add that up, uh, we actually have enough building stock to probably house another eight million mm. people in this country. And then, if we have an economic contraction because of the inevitable bursting of property bubble and we have an economy which has almost been totally built on on this sort of thing that's to a degree unprecedented, then that means a huge amount of the current discretionary economy, uh, you know, people going out to cafes and um, uh, going to the gymnasium and buying all the stuff they buy from, you know, the big box stores, a lot of that economy will actually go out of business that will leave this gigantic amount of building stock waiting to be retrofitted. You know, how do you retrofit a gymnasium, you know, for some other use? You know, now, residential accommodation retrofitting not just the existing residential stock, but all of the other building stock could allow us to probably support, you know, another 20 million people in this country without covering up any more agricultural land. Mm. Now, people may say, oh, no, that's not going to happen. You know, the endless expansion of this mad property, uh, you know, fake um, economy we have will just continue on into the future. And I think that's a really bizarre disconnect that has become so entrenched as and accepted. You know, you have a situation where the Housing Industry Association uses fake data 
to um, show housing demand, one of the ways they do that is they increase all the, uh, they include all the homeless people as part of the housing demand. Mm. Now, I'm sure the homeless people would like a house, but they're not actually part of any sort of economic demand for housing. So we have a, really uh, have had a fairly, uh, you know, for decades, a fake debate about this. You know, we've either got to go up and build more apartments, more empty apartments, or we've got to go out and build more empty houses. It's a cargo cult. Mm. And we do And both, highly yeah. destructive. And although I'm definitely interested in calling that out and, you know, on a program like this with a bit of an emphasis on urban design talking about that, my main interest is actually empowering people who just want to adapt in situ sensibly make the changes uh, that a lot of people are thinking about and the creative patterns that have already worked well for the uh, the early adopters and <clears throat> you know pioneers in this process because um, yeah we have case studies in the book and case studies on the uh, website of households uh, that are recognizing that um, you know life can be better and uh, more resilient and uh, lower environmental impact, um, all while earning less money. <laughs> mm. um, we just have one minute left, David. And yep. so on that point, um, one of the things I love about this is that um, you make a case for people being able to do these changes um, somewhat under the radar and not waiting for permission. And, um, yep. and uh, that's an interesting point. Well, it's, it's, it's to do with the social licence. A lot of things mm-hmm. that people do in the household economy without a massive uh, bank loan behind them are actually quite small and modest. And therefore, their adverse impacts on neighbours and others are also likely to be modest. Mm-hmm. But if there is a relationship where people accept they need to get the social licence from the neighbours for what they do rather than the legal licence, mm-hmm. then that for society is the restraint that we depend on anyway because mm-hmm. most of these problems are things about neighbours dobbing in neighbours to to councils, that yeah. sort of thing. They're not actually really things that are a, a real problem for society. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, things can be done in ways that are badly designed and adversely affect people, but that's part of the regulatory effect of the social licence. If you have the good relationship with the neighbour, then that chook pen you've got on the boundary, you know, that breaches council regulation might not actually be a problem. Thank you so much, David. We're going to have to leave it there. Yep. We look forward to your book being launched next year. Okay, good to speak with you. Thank, Thank you. you.